Amen. Please be seated. Friends, let us listen together for the word of God from the Gospel according to Matthew in the 21st chapter. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Friends, may God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing and our understanding of God's holy word. And as today, since we participated in acting out this story, both waving our palms and processing through the town streets, and we will come also to this table of the Lord reenacting, Quote the story we will tell together on Monday, Thursday, the Lord's Supper. May God also add a blessing to our participation in this story. Friends, what is your favorite story? Is there a story that if you could, you would listen to it again and again? When you were a child, was there a story? And did it perhaps begin once upon a time in a faraway land? Seventy-five years ago now, there was a program on the radio that became a book, that became a movie, that became a general cliché that morphed into a different cliché, which calls the Bible, the greatest story ever told, and then the greatest love story ever told. Are you all familiar with this? This Bible, this good news that we come again and again to hear proclaimed each week, could be called nicknamed maybe, affectionately known as a story, but of course it is so much more than that. And like children with a favorite bedtime story, we come back here again and again to hear it proclaimed each week. On Sunday morning to listen to it, to pray about it, to sing about it, to maybe wander around in it in our imaginations and find perhaps how it might fit in with the stories of our own lives. Like children with a favorite plot they are still wrestling with, who keep acting out the same backyard game. Psychologists would say that stories, fairy tales in particular, give us a way to process things and make meaning. They give us a way to wrestle with things like power and agency, family and belonging, responsibility and duty to community or to the self. And sociologists would add to this and say that we are all storytellers. 
that what human beings do that is unique is try to make meaning through story. One goes so far, so far as to say, story is what brain does. This is what we do. We make stories and we share them with each other. A while back, scientists came on a shocking, almost horrifying revelation that there is a massive organism, the largest on the planet by far, that they think could be as old as 2,000 years old, maybe up to even five or 8,000 years old, meaning that if we were to flip through the pages of the Bible, the Exodus, which is described in the second book, this organism might even have been alive then. But what they discovered was not a sea monster or something we tend to recognize as creaturely. It was a fungus, which despite looking like many small mushrooms, which pop up all over the place, was actually one organism, one thing. Each visible example, each little mushroom was just interconnected to all of the others through the ground. But genetically, they're all identical. I think it's an interesting idea by itself, but I want to use this concept today to highlight something. What if, just like this one massive organism, story, the best stories the stories of our lives, and this one greatest love story ever told is all interconnected. What if it all shares the DNA, the same DNA of God's one story? It might pop up here and there in our individual lives. It might show up in different ways throughout scripture, but what if it is all one? And what if this one story at its heart is a way to put a name to our reality, to make meaning, to understand who we are, how we are loved, how it is that God saves us. Because I believe, personally, that this is far from a simple story. These are not myths. They are not fables. There is a saying in the UCC that Bible stories are not necessarily true stories, but they are truth stories. And perhaps the work of faithful people is recognizing these disparate threads in all of these stories and how they might be connected. Ariana Hones, our student pastor, last week preached so beautifully and modeled this idea, taking three stories, two from her own life and one from scripture, and weaving them together so that we can make sense of one idea. And this Holy Week begins, as it always does, with us acting out the first story, the triumphant procession as we enter Holy Week, a story which will bring us through Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and Holy Saturday before we hear the news next Sunday. I want to encourage you all to return to hear this story as it unfolds. But we begin here. All four of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, share this story. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and himself acting out what the prophets had foretold. Your king will come to you humble and riding on the back of a donkey. People were longing for a king. They had been exiled. They had been sent out into what felt like all corners of the world. They had been ground down and oppressed. 
They were longing for a savior, a messiah. And who could blame them if they were hoping that the savior might take political control? Were they expecting a king to ride in on a war horse, brandishing a sword, ready to overthrow the Roman Empire, ready to crush its torture machines and do what empire had done to them, kill their soldiers, knock down their temple, burn their houses, plunder and divide their treasuries, enslave their children and lead them away? In the ancient Roman Empire, generals had processions like this, but they had to earn them in this way. They had to have killed at least 5,000 people in conquering another territory. Through violence, destruction, this is how they met their quota, and then they would receive glory. But this is an entirely different coronation The people were welcoming Jesus as the king of this kingdom, ushering him into his ancestral city, hailing him as their true ruler. Because this king does not lead the people into an armed rebellion to take back political control of their homeland. No. Instead of coming in like a king wearing armor, I imagine that Jesus brought nothing with him except maybe a simple towel, knowing that he planned to wash the feet of his disciples, taking the form of the lowest servant. This is what Jesus shows us it means to lead, to be a humble servant. He is an opposite, a different sort of king altogether. Can you imagine the young donkey patiently plodding over these tunics the villagers had laid over the path, They are also like their king, humble. They made no glamorous plans for his coronation. They have no finery or jewels. All they have are their tunics and some branches they've pulled off the trees and a borrowed donkey. Only what they can reach for and borrow to honor this one who instead of killing 5,000 had fed 5,000, healed countless others, And because of his loving actions, this is the reason the people are pouring out to see him on his procession into the city for Passover. He is a friend to those who are hurting and oppressed. And so they shout, Hosanna, save us. He is their new king. What does it mean to be practicing Christians, to be faithful followers of Jesus? to be like those who would stand and celebrate his arrival and wave palms. I think it means that we are looking for this reality to show up in our lives. It means that we believe Jesus is the only king. It means that we believe we are part of this kingdom and that we are invited to live by his rules, that love of money and power and violence and greed all evaporate in the face of love of God and love for one another. We talked about Psalm 23 two weeks ago and that radical countercultural claim in that first line, that if Jesus is our shepherd, if Jesus is our king, then Caesar is not. If Jesus is Lord, then no one and nothing else is. So you can see how this procession would have made the powers of empire nervous. They would have paraded right past their crucified insurrectionists, 
cheering along this new one with a claim to a throne, Jesus flying in the face of everything it means to them to lead, other than having followers, of course. And here come these followers who you would expect to be so defeated, but they are engaging in this radical act, shouting out their joy, their celebration, even in the face of their trauma. So if we can say that many of the best stories share the common DNA of God's story and redeeming love, maybe we can practice together looking for this good news anywhere. One place I found it just this last week was in Matilda Jr., the musical. Whether you go see the new movie or dust off an old copy of Raul Dahl's book, Look for this sign of a truth story underneath the fable. And I have one more suggestion for you, and no, I'm not biased, but you could go to see the matinee at 2 p.m. live at Tomlinson, and I might have a teenager acting in it. (laughs) But the Trunchbull. Do you all know the story? This is the Trunchbull versus Matilda, a classic David versus Goliath story, Jesus versus the powers of empire, and you can read into it the DNA of God's love story for us. Here, the little guy, the little girl, the underdog, overcoming, overthrowing an enormous power against all odds, but not by force, but by love and community. This plucky little heroine, the most unlikely one to prevail, The finale celebrates the children who have, like the people in ancient Palestine, had been told all along that they were nothing. Their lives did not matter. The characters in Matilda are told they are maggots. They are disgusting and revolting children. And in the grand finale, they turn all of this on its head And they sing against this cruel headmistress and rise up in mutiny and use revolting in a different sense. Never again will we live behind bars. Never again, now that we know that we are revolting children, living in revolting times. We sing revolting songs using revolting rhymes and we'll be revolting children till our revolting's done and we'll have the trunch bolting. We're revolting. I imagine the same joy infused all of the onlookers who cheered for Jesus as he came into the city. They could go from being told they were revolting to imagining they could even revolt against the powers that caused them to suffer and feel ground down. This idea that tyrants would be toppled from their thrones, of course, comes up in Mary's Magnificat. The mighty will be cast down and sent away empty, but the lowly will be lifted up and fed with good things. In one of my favorite hymns, How Can I Keep From Singing? The singer says, when tyrants tremble in their fear and hear their death knells ringing, and it proclaims, when love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? Friends, can you see this eternal story showing up again and again? But of course, the trouble is, the tyrant doesn't always topple. It doesn't always run away. Not all of them have yet anyway. We still live in a world where we can look around and name that empire can have a very strong hold. Violence and greed, 
still rain in so many places. In one of the Gospels, it's so important that it is children shouting out, Hosanna, save us. And this week, again, these words ring so true as we imagine school children needing to train for lockdowns against unimaginable threat and that they are left to face this. What tyrants need to topple from their thrones for a reign of love to be ushered in. The villains in fairy tales are always those who are selfish and greedy, who use others, who abuse authority, who create societies of fear and punishment, who do not care about the suffering of others, who do not respect and value and love each person as God's sacred creation. And fighting, standing down, facing down these villains is not for the faint of heart. Our stories might all be retellings of this one story, that God's love is for us, that God's redeeming work can happen through us and for the world, but as we retell them, we have to remember that this is not a story that allows us to stand on the sidelines. We cannot be spectators when it comes to God's story. And so I lift up one additional story for us to wrestle with today. Maybe just, more, maybe more unlikely than the last. The movie Enchanted. Do any of you know it? <clears throat> it's been a while since I've seen it, so I might get the details wrong, but it's something like this. Out of a fairy tale land, a princess lands in New York City. She accidentally brings along with her things like the power to communicate and keep house with members of the animal kingdom a willingness to burst into song at the slightest provocation, and most annoyingly, a belief in happily ever after, which does not sit well in her new environment. But she lives her life as an invitation to be aware of this kingdom, not make-believe, but very much real. She knows because she has just come from there. And she lives this way, of course, to the great annoyance of everyone. But she knows the truth. There is not an imaginary alternate universe or pretend parallel reality, but an actual kingdom with real subjects that might also burst forth out of the nearest manhole cover, even in these grimy streets at any moment. She knows this kingdom, one with different rules and different ways of being, one that exists whether or not most people can see it. It is there. It is real. What is a faithful Christian? A faithful Christian, just like her, holds on to the reality of this kingdom that Jesus came to usher in. We remember and we retell this story of this king, the one who came in humble and riding on a donkey, the one who would invite everyone to his table, the one who would kneel and wash the feet of his friends. He is the only king and no one else is. It sounds like a fairy tale, but as faithful Christians, we live by these rules. We believe this to be true. We recognize that this is, yes, a story, but it is the story that shapes the reality of our living. 
You can tell when these stories have the shared DNA of a gospel truth because they speak right to your heart, don't they? Even if they make you feel childish, you cannot help smiling. Our souls rejoice when we hear this eternal message, when we remember that we too can revolt against injustice, when we can continue to praise this true king, when we continue to deny the tyrants who claim our allegiance, be they violence or guns or profits over people, when against all odds, humble and loving people can reveal what John Lewis would explain is the beloved community that is here all along. Friends, can your life story share the DNA of God's story? Can your living show back the true story of God's endless love for you and for all people? And if we can, do you think we might find our happily, maybe even our joyfully ever after? May it be so.